You're listening to the Feed the Ball podcast, and I'm Derek Duncan, architecture editor at Golf Digest. In this episode, episode 75, I'll be speaking with golf designer Troy Miller. Since its heyday in the 1960s and 70s, municipal golf has been something of an afterthought in the larger golf landscape. There was a time when golf was viewed as an exciting new frontier and a game millions of Americans couldn't wait to try and play. Responding to that demand, cities across the country financed the construction and operation of new golf courses, viewing them as desirable amenities that enhanced the health and lifestyles of the citizenry. Gradually, enthusiasm and support for golf in many municipalities faded, largely due to budget restrictions and a growing impression that golf was increasingly becoming a game for the few rather than the many. While there are towns and cities that still have full tee sheets and positive outlooks about golf, it's far more common that courses have to fight for their survival and justify their existence. Beyond this, however, is a very real and growing interest in municipal golf and a deepening appreciation for forms of the game grounded in simplicity, far away from pretension and ostentatious displays of money and development. More and more people, especially younger people, are seeking courses where they can walk and carry their bags, change their shoes in the parking lot, not pay enormous sums of money to play, and, fundamentally, experience interesting rather than luxe holes. When a municipal course gets it right by hitting all these notes, especially the stanza about interesting architecture, it can arouse deep passion and become a golf cry of the heart. Charleston Municipal is that course. Built in the late 1920s, it's always been a popular place to play golf. Rounds were never a problem. Conditioning and interesting architecture were. This was true until Charleston native and golf designer Troy Miller completed a substantial renovation of the course last December, fixing turf and drainage problems, and importing into the design elements of the ideal holes created by C.B. McDonnell and Seth Rayner in the early part of the 1900s. Rayner built two of Charleston's finest private courses in the 1920s, Yeamans Hall and the Country Club of Charleston, but the average golfer in town rarely, if ever, has had the chance to experience that style of architecture. That's changed at Muni, as the course is known. Miller has built one of the most fascinating impressionistic sets of greens you'll find at any municipal course in the country, based on templates like the Redan, the Maiden, the Knoll, Roadhole, Punchbowl, and Beeritz. Muni takes these enduring hole concepts that have always been the domain of the private class and gives them to the people. Charleston residents can now experience what others behind dark fences have always been able to, and they get it for just $20. Out-of-town players get it for 60 That's Muni, a course that shows that public, municipally-owned golf can still be both utilitarian and wildly entertaining. In this conversation, Miller talks about growing up in Charleston, building Muni, how the project got off the ground, why he was uniquely positioned to be the one to get it done, and the implementation of the McDonald Rainer shapes. He also talks about his journey through golf, his association with the ocean course at Kiowa Island, and a potential major overhaul of Patriots Point, another public course overlooking Charleston Harbor. If you love public golf and believe that great golf doesn't have to be expensive or private, you'll very much enjoy hearing Miller articulate the essence of beauty. I'm happy to bring this conversation to you, Here's Troy Miller. So how are things at at Muni? I imagine that they're just going gangbusters. 
It is. It's amazing to see. I mean, the, from the time when we opened in December, it's still the same way. It's these, we, we installed this seven day period to where you can make a tea time seven days in advance. And literally those things are filling up within a few minutes of the 7 a.m. open. Um, and it's just continuing to be that way. It's, it's just so busy. And part of that certainly is how great golf is doing right now. Right. Um, I think a lot of people are seeing that and obviously the newness of the golf course, but it is exciting to see and get a lot of positive feedback on the golf course and it's greening up now and looks really, really good. We've got the city am this weekend. And then of course, next week, a big weekend town with the PGA being here. So um, golf course is probably as good as it'll get over the next uh, 14 to 21 days. Right. So. Yeah. Was there any ever a, a doubt in your mind that this would be successful? The golf course always did a lot of rounds. Uh, was was it a foregone conclusion that this was just going to make the experience better? Or was there any doubt in your mind that kind of introducing these, frankly, probably compared to what they were, like a little more difficult greens, you add a little difficulty into the golf course, we would consider it more interesting and much more fun. But a lot of, you know, the regular guys who've been playing there and women for the, you know, however long, 15, 20 years might have come away with a, a different perception of the golf course. Have you gotten any of that or was it, did you know this was just going to be a home run? Well, you know, it's, I, I worried about it. I did worry about it early on. I worried about more than anything. I actually worried about the size of the greens expanding and the fact that there'd be more, more greens hit more putting going on because putts just take longer. People take longer over putts. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got a lot of, a lot of data to show that. Um, so even when you talk about the difficulty of the greens, it's not so much that as it is now, instead of hitting, you know, eight greens, guys might hit 10 and that's just, you're going to have more putts, but largely we, we've, I've gotten very little of that feedback. I've gotten very little of the negative and I've asked for it <laughs> quite frankly. Um, and you know, the golf course has played very fast and firm, especially over the last six weeks as we've had relatively drought conditions. Um, but the thing that most of the folks that kind of had that inkling of saying the golf course is harder than it was, the one thing they're coming back and saying is I've never had these clubs into these holes before because the golf course is playing faster and firmer. And so now all of a sudden where they may have been hitting a mid iron, they're hitting a short iron into these greens. And so there's a lot of, so I think that there's some give and take there where they feel like they've been, they've been given an opportunity to hit more greens, an opportunity to, to hit shots they can control more, still understanding that the difficulty in the greens is there and, um, and they're learning, um, which is great. I mean, that's what, if nothing else, and I, I did get this comment, which was the one that I was hoping for the most, I've, I've heard, man, you really got to think your way around this place now. And that to me is, that's the proofs in the pudding. Like if, if you mm-hmm. can get that, if you can get somebody to say, they have to think their way around your golf course. You've succeeded. Um, and that's, that's probably been the, the best feedback I've gotten. How were you able to make the golf course play faster? Well, there's a couple of things there. First of all, I think um, the turf type, you know, mm-hmm. going to this tip tough, um, it, it is a tighter Bermuda. Um, and just changing the way that we do things around there a little bit. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that's really interesting about this golf course is it was essentially being maintained in a way that you might have expected in the 50s and 60s up until 2018. I mean, we're talking pull ganging, pull gang fairways at three quarters of an inch and greens at a quarter of an inch in a lot of cases. And so it, it was a learning curve and it was something where 
now we're able to, and one of the excuses for that was always, well, you know, we don't have the turf. We've got 328 on the greens in a lot of places. We've got Tift, we've got, you know, maybe common, maybe, maybe 419 in the fairways and places. So now with the turf changes and their ability to root deeper, require less, less watering and irrigation to stay alive and just a tighter surface. And so it's been a combination of better agronomics, different course care, um, and, and certainly I, it, you know, much to the chagrin of, of the irrigation and the maintenance guys out there, I, I do like to see a lean, mean golf course in a lot of ways. And so less irrigation, less, less mm-hmm. there's spots where I, I have done my best to pull heads. Um, but, uh, but it does make a difference. And then I think too, the contouring around the greens and contouring around the landing areas and really creating better drainage. I mean, that was always the big thing at Muni was the fact that we had this issue of the tidal flooding basically anytime we had high tide. Um, and the fact that a lot of the water, we have a lot of flat areas on the golf course and the water was sitting in the areas of play. Now those things were really designed out. We, we, we elevated the areas to keep them out of that coastal flooding and the areas where we're never going to get rid of the water. This is the low country. You're always going to live with the water, but you're going to move it to places that you want it to be rather than in the lines of play, you know, and that to me has made a big difference too in getting that firmness out of the golf course. Right. How old were you or when was it that you first played that golf course? Good question. Um, Gosh, I would have to say I was probably five or six the first time I played that golf course um, because, uh, Previously, Edisto Island is just south of Charleston. My father had started Aristo Resort there as a kid. Um, and I actually, and so my first few years were down there before moving to James Island and being here and growing up on the golf course. Um, I know my parents have a picture that was in the, I think in the Hilton Head paper of me when I was about 18 months old putting at Harbortown um, <laughs> during the Monday qualifier. But, um, but, but yeah, I think that my, my earliest experience with that golf course was probably right around five, um, and really accelerated from that point because it was at a time where I was starting to play more golf, played in the Al Esposito, which is basically our junior city championship, um, years going forward there. Actually, Lucas Glover played in that a few years as well, um, we, we have, we, we've got a, a pretty good history of, of our city championships at, at Muni. And so from that time period forward, um, I was around the golf course and um, certainly had my parents dropping me off there. And it was, it was a different generation, right? It was a different time. The idea of being dropped off at the golf course with a, you know, maybe a $5 bill for lunch and go play golf and go hit balls. was It was, I wish I could do that with my kids today, but you know, I think we're all more helicopter parents than we once were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you don't see too much of that anymore. You know, you don't, but our junior programs are so strong that it's just more programmed, right? Everything's just so much more programmed out for kids where, and, and that's the thing that has grown exponentially. It's we've in terms of being able to get on the golf course is one thing, being able to sign up kids for these junior events and for the junior programs and clinics, it, it is very very competitive and we're doing everything we can to get more volunteers, more, more qualified people to come out and teach the kids because we've got way more demand than we have supply. And we were able to fix the facility component of that 
immediately by by creating the short game area and the little three-hole short course, expanding the driving range, adding a teaching tee to the back of the driving range, making the putting green twice as big. But it still takes people. Um, and so that's the next piece of the pie for us is to really expand those programs by getting some more folks interested in teaching um, at the facility. I think that's one of the things that's so appealing about Muni is is it's the purest form of public golf. I mean, it's a real municipal golf course. It's in this city. It's popular. It's accessible. And there's these, you know, for those of us who grew up playing public golf, it's just, there's something magical about it when it's done. And it doesn't even have to be done right or excellent, but there's, it just has to be pure. It has to be honest. It has to be accessible and it has to be affordable. And Muni is all those things. So this, this idea of uh, just this place where everybody's can come together and, and have the, these programs and you can play all day. And it, it definitely takes us back to that time, as you said before, when you could just kind of hang out all day at the golf course, you ride your bike there with a few golf clubs, like taped to your, <laughs> to your frame of your bike, <laughs> you know, or over your back with, with a small bag, you know, and, and just, just be a, a, a course rat. And, and, Muni still represents that, and I think that's what's so appealing about it. There's a real excitement about Charleston Municipal right now, and it's because it, it kind of just clicks every box, and it's not trying to be something other than a really pure, excellent example of municipal golf at its best. Absolutely, and you, you hit it. It's pure, it's honest, it's accessible, it's affordable. Those, I love that. I think that's exactly what you're trying to do. And one of the things that was always in the back of my mind as we went through this project was the last thing I want to do is lose that feel, lose the charm of Muni, lose that, the culture of Muni. And so you're right. When you go into a real pure Muni anywhere in the country, you get that feeling. It, it's, it's the way that you walk into the clubhouse. It's the way that the people are hanging out and it is every walk of life. It is welcoming to everyone. And I think those are the things that are important to keep in mind as we go through this Munizance with a lot of courses around the country right now. And, um, you know, I mean, the next step for Friends of the Muni is, you know, they, they want to renovate the clubhouse. They want to provide this pavilion for the kids for the short game area. And absolutely, I want to see these things happen. But the last thing I want to see is some monstrosity of a clubhouse go up there that you feel like all of a sudden you're at a public daily fee or a you know, or, or a quasi public private golf course or something, it, it's got to be Muni. It's got to feel like Muni. And I think that's a big part of the driving force behind the friends is that we all care the same. We all, we all see the same thing and, and lived that same experience as municipal, as municipal golfers growing up and seeing this golf course. So I feel confident that that mission and that focus will, will stay in place, but it is. And, and, you know, I going around the country, there's a lot of great examples of this happening right now. And, um, and you're right, pure, honest, accessible, affordable. I, I think that's exactly what it is. Yeah. And there's, there almost has to be like a level of frugality to the whole operation, like just hit the minimums, you know, just a, a few, you know, some golf balls in the pro shop, you know, and a, a couple putters, maybe someplace to grab a bite to eat and anything beyond that. It's just not necessary because there's the one thing that is uniting everybody in the community and it's the golf course. It's going out and, and either hitting balls, practicing or, or, you know, playing nine or 18 holes. That's it. There's no other reason to go there other than to, for the golf. And that's, 
that kind of if you miss that element of it, I think you've jumped a shark with with municipal golf. And Charleston is, is really nice. It's just a very functional clubhouse right now. You know, the outdoor spaces when you host tournaments that could probably be improved, but it's it's got a nice practice range, good putting green, little three hole short course. You know, uh, places where you can go and kind of tinker around and get better. And then it's it's great golf. That's right. Yeah. No. And you're right. I mean, because because for me in my in my career, and I you know I've been involved with everything. I always describe it as kind of the beer and peanuts crowd, all the way up to the top one percent clubs in the world. And you look at that, and, and you know the service level is something that we always talk about on those. But my God, if I ever had somebody greet me at the bag drop at Muni, I think I'd just circle the parking yeah. lot and go back yeah. out. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just it, that's not what <laughs> that experience is about. And so um, you're right. It it is about you know it's it's the minimalist of the operation side of the business i guess instead of the minimalist on the architecture side exactly exactly well i want to get into sort of like the implications of of this renovation in a minute but at what point in your life i guess did you think to yourself i'm the guy that can make this happen i'm uniquely positioned or i'm at this point in my career or in my business where i can present this and was was there any other option that the, the city had other than than working with you or you going to them and introducing these concepts or, or at least introducing them into the way that made the most sense to them? Mm-hmm. So it was an interesting um, kind of transitional period for me moving back to Charleston in 2015 um, and, and doing other things beyond golf course architecture. And as I got involved um, with a lot of stuff in Charleston, the former mayor who's known me my whole life, we had a conversation a long time ago about, you know, we really need to see something good happen with Muni. And um, as I came back into town, there was more of a buzz about, you know, something should happen. And then our new mayor in 2016 came to me and said, I do want to do something with this. What's, what's your take? And um, my answer was, I'm here to help. I'll do anything I can. The first thing I want to do is provide you kind of a conceptual plan not only from the architecture side, but also from the business side as to why this makes sense for us to do this. And so, um, so at that point, we started to craft that, and this was 2016, and we started to craft that, that the story and the Friends of the Muni and, and also why it was a good investment for the city to, to actually be a part of this and to provide funding for it. Because at the end of the day, what we're going to create is a golf course that is still affordable and accessible for all of our local public and still going to be below market for any of our guests. But by, by charging a almost market rate for the out of towner to come play the golf course, it subsidizes that golf course and basically creates a 10% return on this investment and allows us to maintain the golf course in a way that people are going to want to continue to say it. We've got 8 million visitors coming to town. By the way, that was 5 million when I started this in 2016. And now we got 8 million a year, you know, we're trying to capture 10,000 rounds a year out of that. And so, so the business side of it was always kind of foremost in my mind to make sure that, because there's certainly golf projects that have been done in the world and, and happened that, you know, don't make financial sense, but that one, I, I wanted to make sure that this one was not only a service, but made was financially and fiscally responsible as well. And so at that point we started to talk about, what it would look like and what the vision was. And I did donate. I said, I said, listen, I'm happy to do all of this design work and I'm going to do it for nothing. But if, if the city feels the need to bring somebody in because 
we want to, I'm more than happy to bow out and go do that. And at that point, the, the mayor and the mayor's office just all said, no, we, we need somebody who has the amount of passion and the amount of experience of Charleston to, to be involved in this. And so I, I was, again, happy to, to go through this process. And obviously, it's something that throughout my career as an architect, I've known this golf course intimately since I was a kid you dream about it. And I'm sure a lot of people out there do the same, whether you're an architect or in the golf business or just a, a casual golfer, you, you see the golf course that you grew up on and you go, man, that place has got great bones, man. If only we could do this. Um, and so, it, you know, it, it certainly a lot of the ideas in my mind had been rolling around in there for decades prior to getting this project started. Um, but, uh, but trying to, trying to fit that vision and also just trying to create the overall message and theme of what we're doing. Um, when we talk about the friends of the Muni and, you know, this great 1929 design and the history of golf in Charleston and the history of desegregation in golf in, in, in the South and how this was the first golf course in the state of South Carolina and really the first golf course in the deep South. Um, you know, I think Muni, um, uh, the um, Lions Municipal in, in Austin, Texas, predates this. But beyond that, you know, there's a there's a there's a deep history to tell there. And then when we start talking about the architectural components and the fact that Charleston has Country Club of Charleston and Damon's Hall and these great Seth Rayner designs, and how this golf course kind of evolved like a pad game of telephone from those golf courses and had a lot of the same laborers. Um, that built those two golf courses and had a lot of the same influences. Um, but rest assured, Seth Rayner never stepped foot on this site. Um, <laughs> there, for years, there's always been these questions of that. But, um, you know, unfortunately, Rayner had passed away before this golf course was even a, a, a consideration. Um, but a lot of the same folks that built Gaiman's Hall in 26 and built the Country Club of Charleston in 27 were there in 28 and 29 doing this work. And Country Club of Charleston was right down the street, literally less than a half a mile away. And so there was a lot of that, well, let's go see what it looks like and let's go build it. And probably a little bit lost in translation, but at the same time, you could see those big rectangular pads that had just been lost over time that were that really spoke to some of those features. Um, and so trying to build into that and trying to trying to play that history. So so and then obviously the resiliency side of the project as well and talking about the environmental impacts and all of the, the, the tidal flooding and the, the drainage and the things that are so forefront in our thoughts as Charlestonians today. And there's a lot of great efforts going on to try to make the city more resilient um, against coastal flooding, against these severe hurricanes that we've had and against rising tide levels. And so um, there was a lot of great stories to tell and by wrapping them all up together and being able to kind of appeal to a lot of different people, I think that's how we got this project going. Because if we would have gone and told one of those stories, I'm sure it would have been well received by some segment, but by telling five different stories really of what this project was all about, we were able to build the the energy and the, and the support and the, and, and the momentum behind it that, um, that I think really got it over the finish line. I think when we imagine a project like this succeeding in 
we look at we look at muni and say you know wow let's do that in our in our community but it's probably not that simple i mean i think every town is unique you just mentioned like your your water issues and your erosion issues the things that are on the minds of everybody who lives there that's unique to to that part of the country and, and to charleston uh other municipalities and other places we're going to have a completely different set of problems so i know there it's definitely not a one-size-fits-all approach what were some of the things that you think though could be applied to other municipalities who want to do the same thing with their municipal golf course. Uh, yeah, you know, we it's got to at least at some point come down to you have to have the right people in the city, you know, who are advocates for this project. That's dead on arrival, I think, if you don't have the government basically behind you. But what are some of the other other aspects that, you know, someplace in the Midwest or the, the West Coast could look at Charleston and say, let's take that and see if it fits with us and our own unique circumstances? Well, you know, it is interesting because uh, one of the things this project was uh, has been referred to as unique by a lot of the folks around the country that I talked to about it, because a lot of these other municipal projects have been not dissimilar to a lot of school systems that we see today, where it's kind of like being taken over, where the parents come in and kind of take over and you get these charter schools and, and they run it. Well, this is unique in the fact that the city stayed involved directly the entire time and continues to be. This wasn't a situation where I think we've seen a lot of this recently where you'll get an organization come in, lease the golf course from the city, yeah. kind of take over, make all the improvements, and then you know we'll manage it going forward. Um, I actually kind of wanted this to stay as purely a Charleston asset as it could. And so I'm not saying that's the easy way because it's not. And it takes really – a, a driving force of people who not only on the municipal, on the governmental side and from a staff and a political level, but also people in the private community who know how to work with those folks and know how to work that, that system um, to, to make sure that you are able to move it forward. So, you know, that I really see that as a separate path of kind of this, we're going to lease it and take it over and, and, and make all these improvements and it's going to be great. I encourage people to try to go to their to their local governments and say, listen, you've got somebody in your organization that loves golf. Put them with the people, the private parties in the community that love golf and let them hash it out and figure out how to get it done. Because everyone is unique and everyone has different stories to tell and different things they're trying to overcome and, and other reasons to do it. Um, and so figure out how, A, to, pl- to kind of, provide some of that political pressure, um, what you're trying to solve, as well as what the benefit is. Um, And so, you know, I think that um, we looked hard at the data, too, and looked at what the rounds were doing. I mean, we were at one point doing 65 or 70,000 rounds a year at Charleston Municipal, um, and that had declined a little bit. Um, And just Charleston's the right size community to get a project like this done without kind of the takeover mentality Um, because it is still a small town for even though we're growing at a rapid rate. And so there's a lot of great voices in golf in Charleston who, you know, I I often described it as I I am merely a conduit for a lot of people that are very passionate about this place. And they all had their own distinct and, and valuable set of skills that brought this to fruition. And so I would say that's probably the the way in is to really look and see, okay, who within my municipal government or my county government or my state 
government, if indeed you're dealing with state municipally owned golf courses, is is really passionate about golf and who do, who within our community is business oriented enough to be able to marry those things up and kind of mediate between the public and the private to see this through. Um, it takes, it takes all kinds in, in reality. Um, and um, certainly I wouldn't say the way we did it is the easy way. Um, but I think it to some degree might be more fulfilling because it does remain in the city's hands and is fully a city park and, is maintained by city employees and is something for everyone to just be proud of. Um, uh, and so, yeah, it, it's, it, I wouldn't say it's the easy road, but I think it might be the more rewarding one at the end of the day. What was the breakdown between public money and what you raised privately? Yeah. So basically the way that it worked was um, after all of this was put forward and we started figuring out different sources for financing, and one of the things that we're fortunate here in, in Charleston with hospitality and accommodations tax dollars is that we, we gain a lot of revenue that way. And part of the law is that you have to show what you're putting back in is actually used by tourism. And so we actually had to track rounds and show and say, hey, this is how much tourist play we're getting today. Obviously, we expect that to, to go a little higher after this renovation. We have a golf course that maybe is more appealing to our broader audience. But um, so we, we were able to earmark some funds that way. And that was roughly about three hundred fifty to $500,000 worth of the funding. The city took out a recreation bond that was including some other recreation projects around the, around the city that um, was voted on in October of 18, November of 18, I believe. And at that point, the funding was approved by the local by, by all of um, the local constituents. And then at that point, we were able to go out and secure that bond. And so it was about 2 million from that. It was really a little less than that. Um, and then some accommodations tax dollars. And then the private raise on the Friends of the Muni side is getting closer to the seven figure range. Um, you know, we initially had, had raised roughly about 650 of what was initially thought to be about a million dollars and now probably are pushing closer to that million dollar range with the idea of continuing and being able to continue to raise funds and keep funds in the coffers of Friends of the Muni for these other projects like the pavilion at the short course and the short game area to, to be able to provide for kids and for, for play, you know, events, just an event space, some, a, a gathering place. And the same thing with the renovation of the clubhouse. And so um, we also have thoughts about doing a Charleston Golf Hall of Fame, which I think certainly we've got enough history here to do that. Um, and just having a simple kind of monument to that and being able to highlight people like, like Henry Pickard and Seth Rayner for, for, for what he's done in this town and for the Ford family. Um, you know, we, we've, got, we've got a pretty deep list of, uh, of great golf heritage here. Um, dating back to 1739 in mm -hmm. Hurlston Green. So that's a whole nother topic. <laughs> so if my math is correct, the, the fund was about three and a half million? That's right. Total that we have today, we actually spent about two and a half on the, um, on the renovation itself and have continued to look at other ways to improve the golf course with the remaining funds. That seems very economical to be able to get done what you did for that <laughs> amount of money. 
It, it certainly was. And I think it related primarily to efficiency and design and what we were trying to do. Um, and not to say that there wasn't a way that may have been more turnkey. Um, there wasn't a way that may have uh, provided a quicker result, but this was the way to stay efficient. And so that included really breaking down this project kind of into quadrants and being able to make sure that our cut and fills and all of our earth moving was as efficient as we could get it. Um, you know, a, we went the direction of going and constructing California greens here. And it was something that I hadn't started out thinking about. I, I was thinking USGA spec greens and, and there's, there's a difference in cost there. It's significant. Um, but the more I looked at our weather here and the amount of humidity that we've got and the, and the rising amount of annual rainfall, and in Charleston, we've had some issues over the last five or seven years on a, on a holistic basis of golf courses having trouble with their greens and having water issues. And it just led me more and more to this idea of, hey, I want this place to be firm and fast. I want to try to get the water out of here. And the California green really allows for that more. Um, you know, we've got great drainage and the water's getting away from the greens and it's keeping the water away from the surface so that those roots are reaching a little bit more and it just keeps that moisture away from the tops. And when you're doing 60,000 rounds a year, that's a lot of traffic and a lot of damage that can be created. Um, and so I think all of those things actually played a part in being more efficient as well as being a better product. Explain quickly the difference between USGA and, and California greens. USGA greens are, sure. are built on layers with gravel layers and internal drainage. They're kind of self-contained. Yeah, absolutely. And California yeah, so greens are... Yeah. So, well, one of the things that, and it's interesting, and there's still a lot of, uh, I think a lot of the great agronomics of it and, and really the brightest agronomists in this country would, would, would argue this point to some degree, but the, the idea of this perched water table where all of this water in a USGA green, you've got your 12 inches of greens mix, you got a four inch gravel layer, and then you've got your drainage below. And the idea is to create basically an equilibrium where all of that water is kind of being retained at the bottom of that, it's kind of counterintuitive, but it kind of gets retained until you reach that moisture point to release that water. Um, California greens, there's no retainage. It's literally that water is going straight through, going straight through its 12 inches of, and we did do a dirty mix. It's, it's a sand peat mix, but you, that water is going to perk straight through. It's going to hit the drainage and go out. Um, and so we're not trying to retain any of that moisture in the green. That's what we've got irrigation for. And obviously that's a different conversation if you're in the West Coast, if you're on the West Coast and, um, and not in the humid climates that we're in. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think that's the biggest difference for us. And so now, yeah, and, we, and we're gonna continue to go away from overseeding those greens as well so that you're not having to water them in a time of year where they're not growing. And so that should help keep the tops drier, firmer, healthier, and hopefully um, really cut down on that damage that happens with 60,000 pounds a year. Right. I think that two and a half million number is pretty interesting because, you know, you, a, a, renova a renovation on the scale of what you did could, could run up, you know, four times that depending on what else you're doing, you know, what, where's the money going? Like, are you doing cart pass throughout? Like two and a half is, is pretty doable. I would think for a, a lot of even municipally funded golf courses around the country now could they all come in at that number that'd be difficult it's you know every circumstance is unique how big is the scope of the operation as you mentioned are you you know but if you said i i'm of the belief if you said 
here's two and a half million dollars. That's it. <laughs> what, what can you do for it? I think most municipal golf courses could make a, a pretty good impact on the playability and interest of their golf course. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it is about having good bones and, and having a good starting point. And you mentioned cart paths. I mean, that was the first thing that I said. I said, guys, we're not getting cart paths. You know, I mean, there's, yeah, they're beat up in places. I think it adds to the character personally. <laughs> um, and, and to me, I think it's one of those things we did do some cart path work where we expanded fairways and actually took cart path out and shifted it further off the line of play. But it's one of those things to me where that, that can come in time, you know, and that's what I told him. I said, listen, let, let's get, let's get the golf course, right. Let's get, let's, let's focus center lines out. And then as we get that right, then we can start to move towards these things. And in two or three years, when hopefully these projections hold and we are seeing a return on this investment, you can go and say, Hey, this is the next thing we need to do. We want to resurface all these cart paths or, you know, maybe take some out. <laughs> and so, um, so, so I think that's, that's a real big, that's, that, that's certainly a big cost in a lot of projects where when people start looking at it, that you just need to realize what you need and what you don't. And by the way, you know, Charleston Municipal is a place where we do about 50% walking, 50% cart, maybe 60, 40 walk to cart. Um, you know, it's somewhere in that range, depending on the time of year. And we're still, early on in the data beyond uh, the renovation. So, um, but, it, but again, that's one of those things where, you know, trying to prioritize center lines out and really focusing on the features of the golf course and the playable areas of the golf course and understanding that the edges are going to be what the edges are. It's part of the charm and part of the character of a municipal golf course. I think all of those things play into trying to make an efficient and affordable project for any municipal government. You know, you mentioned uh, Country Club of Charleston and Yeamans Hall, both Seth Rayner de- uh, designs from the 20s. I'm curious, though, you know, we've seen over the last 20, maybe even 30 years, uh, a, a real renaissance in the understanding of architecture from that period, because from probably after World War II up until, the, you know, through the 70s and maybe even the 80s, you didn't, the architects were not the figures they are now. You know, there's been a lot of research and and, and back exp- exploration that goes. And now we've, over the last period of time, courses have rediscovered their or their origins and their history. And the architect has become elevated. What was Rayner's, you know, somebody who's from Charleston, you played Muni and you were obviously familiar with the private clubs in town. Was the word, the name Seth Rayner ever mentioned when you were a kid growing up? And when do you think that that, the, the notoriety of the, early original work of his at those clubs came back into vogue and was really beginning to be appreciated. Right. Yeah. No, when I was growing up, that was not something that you really thought about and really it's interesting. And I'll tell a quick aside here because I think it's, you're right. And it just goes to show you. So when Pete was working on the ocean course, I I had just gone off to college and, and really had just discovered the, discovered Donald Ross's work. Sorry, Bradley Klein, to, to steal the title of your book. But, uh, um, but yeah, and so I, and, and I was coming back and working summers at the Ocean Course during renovations. And I went and picked Pete up one day from the airport. Pete got in the car and I said, Pete, I understand you spent some time with Donald Ross. And he said, yep, everybody used to follow J.C. Penney and Donald Ross around the golf course. Nobody knew who Donald Ross was, but everybody wanted J.C. Penney's autograph. <laughs> and that just kind of speaks to the fact that you're right. I mean, architects and, and golf course architecture was 
was not something that was largely known or celebrated. Um, for here, locally in Charleston, obviously the work that Tom Doak did in 96 at Yeamans Hall was the first indication of that. Um, you know, when that, when that happened and, and the renovation and, the, and really taking a golf course, which, by the way, there at Yeamans in, in the late, in the mid-90s, I mean, you had the same kind of atrophy of greens that we'd seen at Muni over the last 90 years. And so he took those greens and expanded them back out of these corners of these big pads and, and really brought back those features. And so that was a time in which it was probably, oh, yeah, you know, who did this, you know, and especially given the unique nature of the architecture of Rainer, um, I think that was even more eye popping for people. And then subsequent renovations at the Country Club of Charleston have really celebrated that as well. And so, yeah, it, it really didn't take hold here until um, the late 90s and early 2000s. And um, from a historical perspective, and then obviously from a modern perspective, in, 90, in, in 1990 and 89, when Pete got here and, um, and the Ocean Course, I think that was really probably a, a big turning point for Charleston as well in understanding, you know, who is this guy and why is he building this really hard golf course? Um, and so I, I think those, those were the elements that we saw that changed things here in town. But for me, yeah, I mean, growing up, I was aware of it. Golf courses were great. Um, but it really wasn't until, in, until my later high school years and then into college when I really got into architecture and was doing work on, on golf course work, work with Andy Banfield, Fazio Design at the renovation of Osprey Point in 96 and then, um, then went on to do some other work with under other architects and, and then really got into and, and built this passion for golf course architecture through my undergraduate and graduate years. And so, um, so, so yeah, it, it was something that people really just didn't understand. And it's great to see this interest and, and really this renaissance. And my God, there's no 142-year-old having a greater comeback right now than Seth Rayner. Um, the, the amount of work and emphasis seen, and I think it just speaks to the difference in replica versus template um, because certainly there's, there's been both have <laughs> been tried, but when I think about template holes, I just think about strategy and I think about trying to really enlist the strategy of the best golf holes in the British Isles and not necessarily trying to, to fit the look into an environment, which it probably doesn't match. Um, so that's one of the things that I think is, is often um, miscalculated in, in conversation with the novice is, oh, yeah, yeah, the Rainer McDonald guys, yeah, they did all replica hole. No, 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 no. There, there's a difference. Um, and, and the templates really speak to strategy and how a golf hole is played more so than how it looks. On a personal level, I've never been a fan of, of even modern architects replicating template holes, if you can put if, if you'll <laughs> let me that. Um, I just, I, you know, I just think there's why not explore your own ideas? And you know, those, those ideas can be modified, but they don't have to be like an exact looking template hole with the steep banks and the square shapes. That said, I couldn't think of a better program for Charleston Muni. I mean, it makes complete sense. It's tapping into the history of architecture in that region. It's inaccessible to most of the people who live there, unless you belong to or one of those clubs or have access to it, you bring it into a municipal setting, and it does the most important thing of all, which is the hardest thing to do for a public golf course on minimum finances. It's create this je ne sais quoi 
quality, this thing that you can't put your finger on, but it's the kind of thing that makes somebody who lives in Phoenix, Arizona, want to fly across the country and play Charleston Municipal Golf Course if they're in that area. They're going to look it up. They're going to go out of their way to go play this $60 golf course. And that's, you can't put a price tag on that. So despite my my reservations about the whole concept of it, it's just a genius move in this particular setting to use those Rainer template holes on a public golf course. Well, I, I don't disagree with your sentiment. I, you know, I think that trying to, to be, you know, replicating what was done in the twenties and on, you know, in an original design is, is not something that, that I have a lot of desire to do. I really do see this as a museum piece. I see this as an educational piece. I, the thing, and we're starting to see a little bit more. I know there's some, there's some projects going on in the Northeast now that'll, that will provide greater accessibility to this style of architecture, but when we started this project, there there are no publicly accessible Rainer McDonald golf courses in the country. And so trying to provide a look to the general public into what this architecture was and what was such an important part of the golden age and of the history of golf architecture in the United States, it, that was the whole purpose. And so, you know, trying to really go to the umpteenth degree with that and really implement these holes where they fit and making them work is absolutely the right move. Now, what does that do for me going forward with other projects? Certainly, I I don't think I'll ever build one that looks like this again. Um, But I do know that those templates and the strategy that they hold is time tested. And there's a lot of opportunities to take a piece of property and figure out where that fits and molds into an original golf hole as it works into the land, because I think that's more important. And one of the unique things about the low country is the flatness. And, you know, in Charleston, we have that ability to to build something out of nothing that doesn't necessarily, you know, where, where we don't have strong features and you really have to work to try to enhance those one or two foot contours um, versus working in the mountains or, you know, and, and trying to figure out how to squeeze something in. And so, um, so, so yeah, I, I, I think that the biggest thing and the takeaway is hopefully this provides an opportunity for the general public to really experience this style of architecture that they otherwise would be wholly inaccessible to them in the country. And, um, you know, I've used the line, it might be the only Redan in the country you can play in blue jeans. Yeah. Um, and maybe that'll hold true, but uh, I hope not. I hope that I hope there are other projects like this that really speak to this style of architecture. You know, one of the interesting things about the McDonald Rayner template holes was how they were somehow it's it's kind of amazing that they can they can be applied to different properties. They can be in the mountains, they can be in the prairie, they could be on a you know, in Charleston where it's pretty flat. Muni's site is very flat. How did you go about what was your process in, in deciding what general template concept to use on which part of the golf course? Because you weren't getting a lot of feedback, or, you know, from the land. It wasn't suggesting, you know, here's a great place for a natural Alps. You know, there's no, there's no shoulder to, to you know, put a tide of green on the other side of it. So how did you go about deciding what to put and where? Yeah, you know, I think that, that that speaks to the fact that you really do have to look in the, the really small scale when it comes to elevation change. And as I went around that golf course for years and started thinking back about, you know, what does this look 
a little bit like. <laughs> I think that's where it really started. And, you know, understanding the templates and understanding the ones that really have, have been probably the most uh, prominent that have that were used and that are thought to be the best holes in the country today amongst those Rainer McDonald designs, you know, I, I focused first most on those and making sure that there was a place to, to try to implement, you know, my favorite part of this project is, is the succession of 11, 12, 13, and 14, where you kind of are in your own little quadrant of the golf course and you've kind of left this Parkland setting, crossed the road and started to head down towards the river and you play Redan, Cape, Road, and Short in that order. And so when I think about, and I think, gosh, I, back into the late 90s and Sleepy Hollow and the Lynx magazine cover, and it talked about the templates. And I think those were the ones that were listed. You know, I mean, those those are the ones that people think about the most and are probably the most um, uh, probably the most recognizable amongst the, the the golfing and golf architecture public. And so, um, so certainly there there was some luck to that that those holes just fit in those locations. Um, we wanted to keep the routing largely intact. I changed a couple of angles on tee shots, but beyond that, it was really fitting into what was already really good bones of a golf course. And so looking at the length of holes, how they played, we do have very few hills out there, but to your point, the ninth, you know, the Alps hole that we've created there, we do have a small ridge that kind of, that you play over in the fairway that allows for just a tiny bit of, um, uh, of blindness um, cut when coupled with the large cross bunker out front. Um, and probably the one that was, I'd say that surprisingly I felt like was there that people might have played this golf course and go, no, it wasn't is the sixth hole in the little punch bowl. Mm -hmm. um, because that green was always my favorite on the golf course. Um, it had some real character to it and had movement. Unlike most of the other ones that were relatively flat and small, that one had retained its size a little bit and also had this unique element of kind of pitching from front right to back left. And as I looked at it and started to morph on it and think about, well, let's just take it to the umpteenth degree here. Um, that whole kind of pulled out for me. And, and it's, I know it's unique as a punch bowl. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, I had somebody tell me it's more of a teacup than a punch bowl, um, <laughs> yeah. but it, but the punch bowl for a very create, small party. Yeah, party that's right. Two. That's exactly right. <laughs> um, yeah. maybe, maybe a COVID punch bowl. Maybe that's there why it was built during COVID. So, um, but, uh, but it does give you that sense of, you know, that excitement of the ball disappearing and being able to use that back slope and, and just some of those features and the same thing with the Redan. I think we took, a lot of these greens to a level that probably relate more to the contours that would have been built in the twenties rather than the contours that are built today because of the fact that it's a municipal golf course, because of the fact that the green speeds are never going to exceed nine or 10 at the most. So it allowed for a little bit more freedom. Um, now I might eat those words in the future, but I live right here. So if I ever get a hot shot superintendent and once those greens roll in 12, I might just have to walk across the street and have a conversation, but, <laughs> um, but the idea is it's, it's always going to be a golf course that is easier to maintain because we're trying to maintain green speeds at a more reasonable level of nine or 10. And so in order to do that, you want to have more contour in the green to create that interest. Um, and so, yeah, that I would say it was 
not unlike a lot of flat sites, it's a matter of trying to extract everything the land gives you. And not only from a ground perspective, but also from a viewshed perspective and a wind direction perspective, because we're in a unique position here in Charleston where we have two very prevailing winds. In the wintertime, it's hard out of the northeast. And in the summertime, it's hard out of the southwest. And so trying to fit those holes and make them work. Um, and, you know, we're, we're more eight months in that southwesterly and four months in that northeasterly wind. Um, but that certainly played a part into where those templates went and how I wanted them to play on a daily basis. The 11th you mentioned is the Redan. It's maybe the standout hole on the golf course for its audacity, I guess, but also because it's right there on the road and everybody, yes. even if you don't play golf, you're going to see it. And, and when you come and, and you stand on the tee, it's, it's a striking sight. You know, it's a, it's this big angled green with a huge back shoulder. Was that pretty much, was the inspiration for that Yeamans Hall? It was, yeah. it absolutely was. And in fact, I took my, my shaper, Steve Mann to Yeamans. Um, and we stood there and I said, okay, you got it. Yeah, I got it. Okay. All right. Well, let's go. And we went straight back and started working on that green. You know, the interesting, unique thing about Yeamans and that Redan is that it is a very pinched slope. You know, it is, it's very pronounced and at the back of the green and it does play differently than some of the other best Redans that, that we've played that I've seen in the country. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I wanted to make sure that we had that pronounced slope that was really pinched and really strong angle. And you're right. Being right there on the road, I mean, that, that is an important feature of seeing the golf, golf course, and that's on the road to Kiowa, you know, when, the, when all of those folks are in town for the PGA going that direction. And that's also the part of the golf course that got the biggest overhaul and change because before, when you stood on that tee, you saw kind of a new growth maritime forest of pines and cedars. Your view was completely blocked of the river and this huge, vast river body of the Stono. And so that's, you know, now having this backdrop where you stand really the most elevated tee shot on the golf course, playing down to the Redan and having the backdrop of this new pond and then the 13th hole and then the Stono River and the big salt marsh that surrounds it. Um, you know, it, it's introducing you to, to a different style of golf within the round and something new to Muni, which is certainly something that feels more linksy um, because of the fact that we were able to remove so much of that, that, or that new growth and really expand and, and, and bring back a lot of these wetlands. A lot of it was wetland reclamation um, in order to create this big pond and center element between those holes 11 through 14. And so, again, looking not just on the ground to be able to create those contours, but also looking at the backdrop and the direction of the wind and, and trying to get that feel um, is a big part of it. Uh, 12 is a really nice, elegant hole with a beautiful green setting back up in the trees against, again, right up against the, the marshes. And then 13, we've, you've talked about it, but is maybe the, the other, if not the standout hole on the golf course, just because it's so different. And even for a road hole concept, I'm not familiar with anything that's, really like that and uh just the way that the the centerline bunkers are, are angled you have the option to carry them and then just huge green that's perfectly just like the road the original road hole concept it's pinched up against hard against a hazard with the big bunker in front and you've got to get that right angle into the, the axis of the green to have any chance at having success there but it's and then it's kind of elevated slightly and propped up and crowned and it's just a dramatic uh, set piece 
Yeah, well, I think that you're right that, you know, the reason that we call it the road hole and the reason that I describe it as that is because of the green setting. The green setting and the road hole bunker is there, but in reality, it, it's a Franken hole. It, it's, you know, it's a bottle hole with a principal's right. nose right. with the road hole green complex. Um, and so, and it is the widest golf hole on, on Muni, which is, it's really unique in that way. And the way I've described it to people is, you know, taking that high line above the center line bunkers to the right of the principal's nose, you know, it provides you with two things, a, a great angle into the green and B a beautiful view of the Stono river. And, but at the same time, aunt Minnie can play it down the left-hand side, never have to deal with the bunkers. She could literally put it from tee to green and past the green mm -hmm. in the way that Ian Baker Finch describes playing the 17th at St. Andrews play past the road hole bunker and then play back and take your chances. And so that I think is from a strategic perspective, the one that is the most unique and the one that is probably the, the biggest change to the golf course. Um, and, and so I, I, I am, I do have a, a, a good place in my heart for that one. Um, you mentioned 12, you know, I, I, I looked hard at mid ocean and the, I think the Cape at mid ocean is probably the best one anywhere. And, thinking about, you know, there, there's a little bit of that, that tree line and that mangrove and the, the way that the tree line works on that golf hole, it sets up those long lines. It sets up the long line of, of the, the Cape key shot, which, you know, that's part of a Cape hole, obviously being surrounded on three sides by bunker as well. Cause that green setting being out there is important as well, but just trying to get all those long lines going with the line of play um, is really important and something that, again, you know, you talk about Pete Dye. I mean, that's, that's the heart and soul of a lot of his work. And what I learned most from, um, was making sure you were setting up those lines correctly. And so, um, so yeah, the, that, that stretch from 12 to 13. And again, you know, that's a place where before this project, it was 13, even at a mid-level high tide, there was water across that fairway. It was unplayable. Mm. In 2018, 2019, before we started construction, there was only 10 days in the month of July that the back nine was even open because of tide levels and because of thunderstorms. It was so flat and so low. And so being able to take and expand this big wetland and be able to use all, generate all that material to elevate that hole, that hole got elevated by anywhere from five to seven feet from where it was originally. Um, and now we have this great protection against those rising tide levels, against big storms, and we're able to keep all of the fresh water internal to the property and keep all the salt water internal to the salt marsh. And so we've really helped from an environmental perspective of cutting down on that transference between the golf course water and irrigation and drainage and the salt marshes that are so unique and sensitive environments to our to our world here. And so that holds true both on 13 and 15 of creating that separation, cutting down on that transference and elevating the golf holes so that they're no longer impacted by those tides. Mm -hmm. The double plateau green is pretty extraordinary as well. And <laughs> it, it uh, it's another hole that I, I'm thinking you probably, your inspiration for that was Yeamans Hall. And then I also learned when, when I was out there that it was probably the inspiration for the first screen at Old McDonald as well, which is a double plateau. Did you always know that the first hole at Muni was going to be the double plateau green? I did because of what was there before. Um, you know, it's amazing. And, and people are going to say that's insane. But 
there was always this, there were some mounds around the green that existed that probably in the beginning were part of the green complex. But again, over time and atrophy and the amount these greens shrunk, um, you know, it, that, that was always kind of there. Um, there were some mounds kind of front left and some mounds back right. Again, you know, whether or not that was ever a thought in the 20s when that was being built or not, I don't know. But there was enough there for me to say, okay, let's take this and just exaggerate it by a thousand percent. And so that green complex is one that um, I like the fact that it's the first hole, not only because it pays homage to Gaiman's Hall and being the first hole, but also because I really wanted people to get this understanding that that this is a new day, this is a new deal, this golf course is different. And that one kind of hits you in the face right out of it the does. gate. And, I, and, and I'd, I'd say too, if you quit, we want you to quit early. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I think that that's a really big piece. And then for me too, starting with, with par four, par five, the way we do, one thing I've always noticed is pace of play issues. And, and the second hole was always a reachable par five. One was a small green where basically everybody was coming up, two putting very fast, and then proceeding to two green to stand there kneeling on their, or leaning on their club for 20 minutes while they waited for the fairway to clear. I think we fixed that to some degree because now what you see is one really puts an emphasis on putting, which is very important to me. And I think a big part of, of making this golf course better and making it more of a thinking man's golf course. And so now people are taking more time to putt. It's not an automatic two putt. And then the second hole, we were able to stretch out by about 15 yards and really bend really it's, it plays more like 20 to 25 yards longer because it bends more as well. And so now what we're seeing is fewer people going for that green and two. And so now that, that little plug in the beginning of the round has been, is, has been softened because now as opposed to rushing off of one green and standing on two T, people are taking more time to, to hit those putts on one. The, the fairways clearing out on two before they're getting there and being able to kind of keep that flow grow, going early in the round, which can always be a killer anytime that you've got a holdup in the first few holes and I know you know a lot of people would say from a routing perspective you know reachable five reachable fives and par threes early in a round are are deal killers and as much as we'd love to all follow the rules it doesn't always work out that way so yeah yeah. there are so many standout green complexes there uh just they're fascinating they must have been just so enjoyable to work on and conceive of you know some of the ones that I also love are like 15 the maiden green i really like 16 it's just so subtle mm-hmm. just because there's almost like compared to some of the other greens you know it's it's not this giant cathedral of, of contours just kind of cool and glassy um obviously the seventh green the knoll green what are some of what are what's one or two of your favorite greens maybe that people don't talk about enough or one that you're really proud of well i actually it's interesting because i had a lot of folks talk to me about the ninth green after the fact um you know and have have said how much they love that green and at the time it wasn't one that really jumped out at me and now the more i play it it's one that i've learned um is is probably more of a standout than what i had kind of intended or thought in the beginning. Um, and I think that's only going to hold more true And the shoulders on the side of that green and kind of the middle Ridge line. Again, you know, a lot of that pays homage to what you see at Yemen's hall. The one thing I'd say about Yemen's versus Muni, and this is kind of, it's, I, I think it's very telling of, of what it is. 
you know, Yaman's, the greens are literally square. I mean, the, the width of Yaman's Hall is one of the things that sets it apart and makes it great. Um, and Muni doesn't have that kind of space. And so a lot of our greens are much more rectangular. And so I kind of, as opposed to the big, brawny, beefy Yaman's Hall mentality, Muni is more strag- scraggly, you know? I mean, it, it's, it's more lean and mean. It's kind of like the difference in a gray wolf and a coyote. Um, you know, I mean, it's just, it's the, there's a lot more leanness to what goes on at Muni. And so the long lang- angle or long angles of the ninth green is something that I think is interesting and different. Um, so, so yeah, I think that green is, is one worth talking about. Um, 10 and, and nine and 10 are half par holes. I always tell people nine and 10, if you make nine, that's great. You tell me which one's, which one's a par five, one's a par four. The 10th green, it's a short par five. And so the green is really meant to put an emphasis on that putting. And the way that that green sets up and really angles away from the player who chooses the poor line off the tee is where the difficulty and some of the nuance comes in because everybody's going to go at that green in two with a decent tee shot. And Mm -hmm. so if you're not on the right-hand side of the fairway where the bunkers really protect that line of play, then any shot you hit in that green is probably going to scoot through to the pop bunker at the back right corner versus really playing the hole properly. And so I think, especially right now, as fast and firm as the golf course is, I have watched and seen players go instead and say, okay, I'm down this left-hand side. I got no chance. I'm going to lay it up somewhat to 20 or 30 yards short and right of the green and use the angle of the green. Um, I think that, again, from a thinking perspective, that green stands out to me as one that um, is looks like something that you're, you're going to have to think about a little bit more than after you play it the first time. You might learn something, let's right. put it that way. Yeah. You've mentioned Pete Dye already in our talk. You mentioned your father. You have a special relationship with the Ocean Course, which is hosting the PGA Championship next week. So uh, all eyes are going to be on that golf course in your part of the country. Who is your, actually tell our listeners who your father is and, and what he does now. Yeah, sure. So my father is Ronnie Miller, who is now the director of instruction at Kiowa Island Resort. My dad has been a PGA professional for almost 50 years now. His first job in golf was at Charleston Municipal 54 years ago. Um, and um, so obviously I grew up in the golf business on the golf professional side. Um, and, uh, and because of that, was exposed to a lot of great golf courses and a lot of great architects over the course of my youth. Um, you know, the ability to go to work with uh, in, in, in my youth and do some of these renovations with Fazio's group with Osprey Point and then um, got to do some of the work at Ocean uh, in later renovations once I was of age. Um, but more importantly, the experience of when that golf course was being built. Um, which ironically, Landmark Land Company, who was the, the company who, um, who developed the ocean course in 1990, um, is who I inevitably went to work for in 2005 when I started my career after grad school as an architect. But, um, but during the building of the ocean course in 90, um, Pete was sharing a trailer office with my father at Osprey Point um, and would come in in the afternoons. And in the summer, I would be down there just hanging out and hitting golf balls and he would, um, and on occasion, he, he would take me and say, come on, let me show you what we're doing. And my dad remembers, and, and I actually have a very vivid memory of this, of Pete taking me 
to the ocean course one afternoon and um, standing me in the bunker behind the old 11th green. It was a very deep bunker. And I was a smart aleck nine-year-old little kid. And I looked up and all I could see was the sky. <laughs> and I looked at Pete and I said, why didn't you make it deeper? And he called a guy over on the mini. We scooped two more feet out of the bottom. He goes, what do you think? I said, that's good. And that, and that was it. And, and so that was my first brush with golf course architecture. And so which bunker is that? Is that the one behind 11? It's behind 11 green. And actually, you know, during the Ryder cup, I remember Davis could not get out of it. I I remember (laughs) eventually he, in one of the matches, he just, uh, they just eventually picked up and moved on. But, um, and that green's different today, actually in 2002, during one of the renovations, I remember us working on that, moving that green over a little bit, but, um, but yeah, that was a, that was a great introduction to golf course architecture. And, um, and so, yes, that golf course, um, both in my personal and professional life with landmark and being from Charleston and my father's, uh, history and and career at Kiowa, um, holds a very special place. I was one of the first caddies out there when the caddy program was first, um, enlisted in the late nineties. Um, and you know, it's great to see people of all walks, you know, for, of all levels of player come out to the ocean course. And I've got some great stories about, I remember one time a, a lady came to the first tee and, um, she hit her tee shot and just kind of dribbled it down the right-hand side into the waste bunker down the right. And I ran down there and, and started to tell her what she was going to hit. She goes, Oh no, 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 I don't do sand. And so I was like, okay, ma'am, you're going to hit 18 shots today. <laughs> and then we'll work, work from there. And so, um, but, but yeah, I mean, people just like a lot of Pete's hardest work, um, you know, people, golfers are gluttons for punishment. Um, and so getting to see people go around that golf course and experience the visual intimidation, the wearing down that that place will do. It's like golf safari going through the ocean course. I mean, there's the wildlife, the wind, yep, that's a good the way environment. To it. It's, it's just, and it will beat you down um, over, over the course of that round um, because you really do, you're just tested on every shot all the way through, you know, you keep looking for that breather. And, and I got to tell you, it's not out there. And it's remarkable that over the last, really since the mid nineties, but also in the early two thousands, how much more playable they've tried to make the golf course, how much more turf they've added around the greens, how they've extended the grass collars out. Whereas, you know, the early iterations of that golf course, it would take maybe one bounce to the right or left off the green and you're in the dunes, you know, in, in the right. thick grass. Yeah. It's probably unplayable or lost ball. That's right. And and so that's one of the unique things about being a resort golf course, right, is you're, you're trying to get people around. And so one of the things that happened in some of these renovations was this idea of let's let's add some turf. And there's been a substantial amount of turf added to that golf course over the course of time. But one of the things that was always in the, in the forefront for Pete was always about maintaining that visual intimidation, maintaining those angles of play and adding that turf in places that wasn't necessarily going to change the look and feel of the golf holes as much as it did the playability of them. Um, and so the, I love going back and looking at the war by the shore and some of these great documentaries that have been done about 91 in the Ryder cup. And, you know, then there was, I, I would say there, there was a substantial amount of less turf out there and it was 419 Bermuda and Tiff, uh, I guess uh, at the time it wasn't Eagle. Eagle went in in 02 for a short period. It was Tiff Dwarf on the greens. And um, 
the, the golf course played really, really fast and firm and the edges, it was just short grass and sand. Um, and in fact, during watching Melbourne in 19 at the president's cup, that got me thinking back to what that golf course played like that week during, during the Ryder cup in 91. And just thinking about all of these exposed sand dunes that the ball would run out and it would run off the fairways and it would run into the dunes and you'd, you'd be able to find it and hit it and play it, but you weren't going to like it. And your angles just got exceedingly worse as you hit it offline and the ball just continued to trundle offline to where those really sharp angles of Pete's work, you know, you start hitting it offline, all of a sudden you've gone from having half a chance to no chance. Um, And so I think that that's one thing that has changed about the golf course. The seashore pass palms a different grass, but uh, you know, and people argue about, is it a link style golf course? Is it not? I think, I think that changes from day to day and season to season um, to some degree. And, you know, but the elevated nature of those greens doesn't take away from that from me. Um, you know, I think about places like Dornick and I think about, you know, I think about the second green at Dornick, mm-hmm. fifth or the mm-hmm. tenth. I think about those greens being elevated in a Lynx environment. Um, you know, certainly I think Pete took it a little further, no surprise there, but there's still that opportunity if, you really get your angles right and you play the right lines of play to hit a lot of linksy style shots. It's, it's just a matter of that fastness and firmness. So what I thought when you but mentioned the added turf and the resort nature of the, the golf course and how they've had to kind of soften over the years, what came to my mind was watching Seminole over this weekend. I don't know if you got to watch the Walker cup, but that golf course and all of those sandscapes and that open sand where the, the transition was from fairway right into the sand, I imagine that was sort of more similar to what the ocean course was in the early 90s. Um, and I'm sure, I'm sure you know, it's not an exact correlation. They're two very different golf courses in, in different settings, but the exposed nature of the golf course. And, right, and, and also with, at the ocean course right now, there's sand and there's the waste bunkers, but there's also so much overgrowth on the dunes that it's, if you get in the dunes, it's not really playable. You mentioned that in the early days at the, at the, uh, at the Ryder cup, you know, you might be in a bad position, but you could get a club on the ball. It wasn't a great shot, but you could find it. Now it's, you know, if the ball goes into that thick vegetation, it's, you know, you're taking a drop at least. Right. And, you know, I think that that speaks, you know, there's more turf, there's more irrigation and trying to really contain that, that sandy environment and trying to maintain the blowing sand is a big part of that as well. And so you're right, you get those edges that are, that are lush and they're different than what it was. And so, yeah, I, I think that one of the things that, that changed the way the golf course played was that additional irrigation and those kind of, in, kind of bringing in that lost ball mentality as the ball rolled out. Now, this week at the PGA, one of the things that you're going to see is a significant second cut. I mean, the, the rough out there is significant right now. And so it, it's not the same golf course. And in the same way that, you know, we saw last fall at Wingfoot with the, with the amount of rough and the, and the width of the fairways there, you know, you, you're not going to get that far offline because the ball is going to nestle into this rough and you're going to be still somewhere on the golf course probably um, versus, you know, what I can remember – with those persimmon woods and um, in, in 91 and guys hitting low hooks and all of a sudden the ball just going and it just would keep going. And then all of a sudden it would lose turf and be out in the sand and the sand was the only thing that was going to stop it. Um, and so I, I think, uh, 
it's a different it's a different golf course today, no doubt, than what it was in the early '90s. Um, and the the you know you can get golf courses fast and firm. Past pounds of different grass. It's it's going to be a little stickier. I think the players are well aware of that. Um, you know, I liken it a little bit to what you see in Zoysia. I think you know, in terms of having Zoysia around around green complexes, I think that's it plays very similarly to that. Um, but it sits up really pretty in fairways and on tees. Um, and so, yeah, I think it, it'll be a very different um, golf course for and, and it was for Rory in 2012 at the PGA than what it was in 91. Um, but keep in mind, I don't think a single player broke 80 on Sunday at the Ryder Cup either. And um, so hopefully the scores are a little better than that. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned it, that the, the turf quality is so much better now. And if there's no wind, who knows what the scores will be. If there's a lot of wind, well, it'll be very competitive and, and difficult. That- that's right. And I am excited about the fact that we've got this move to May. I mean, we've had very windy conditions here over the last couple of weeks. I'm hoping we keep those for another 10 or 15 days. It should be a little days. drier. The golf course should be it'll a little be, drier. It'll certainly be drier, firmer. And one of the things about that, remember in 2012 too, is Saturday afternoon, we had the huge thunderstorms and washed out play for the last nine holes for the leaders. And they played 27 on Sunday, starting at 730 in the morning. And so Rory's back nine on his third round on Sunday morning is really what separated him. And so that, you know, in playing early in the morning on Sunday morning after this big thunderstorm in August, you know, that's, that's kind of the time of year when we're in the doldrums and we don't have the win. So, so the golf course will again be different from what it was in 2012 than versus what it was in 91. Um, I'm, I really do think it'll be a firmer test and, the wind, you, you know, you, you, you can't control it. But this time of year, we certainly have got a better chance of getting that wind and having days where we have different winds, which is a big part of how that golf course was designed. I mean, golf course is 78 and 7,900 yards, but that's because of those varying prevailing winds and the fact that some days it'll blow out of the east hard and some days out of the west hard. And this time of year, we've got that chance to see that shift a lot more likely than we do in August, where the wind's basically going to be out of the southwest every day. Yeah. And the nights are still a little cooler, so that, that right, kind of get – the grass is differently. The humidity is down a little bit more, and and you get the, that wind, and you might see a, a pretty fast surface if you get those all those conditions right. Yeah, absolutely. I pattern. think that all, all of those things make, make May a better date for us than August was, for sure. Definitely. Well, while I've got you, there's one more thing I wanted to talk about. You are a, a golf course designer. You're, you also wear different hats. You're very active in development and other things. And one of the interesting projects I'm hoping you can uh, lend some some expertise and some insight to is happening in Charleston, potentially. Um, I'm not sure how far along or, or exactly what the prognosis is, but it's a potential redevelopment of Patriots Point, which is another public golf course that uh, sits overlooking Savannah Harbor and Savannah Bay and um, very very gorgeous site for a golf course. Um, the golf course itself is fine, uh, but there's so much potential just because of the setting there. And there could be some movement to do something with that golf course. What can you tell us about Patriots point? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So Patriots point is a golf course. that was built in 1980 on old dredge property. Um, when the, when the Harbor was deep and when Charleston Harbor was deep and first in the early seventies, this became a dredge site and then eventually became, high land that 
that they built this golf course on. Uh, Willard Bird was the was the architect in 1980, and you know I think Willard's uh, he he himself had said you know I build I play I build playable golf courses, and there's no doubt this is a playable golf course. Um, it is very mediocre for the site that it sits on. And let me be specific and say, this is a fantastic location. From a site perspective, it's difficult because it does sit on old dredge land. It's basically on pluff mud. And so it's a unique experience in that the idea of going back and doing something here is really about, and we talked about 91 in the ocean course and what that golf course looked like and what Seminole looks like today and actually, there's a lot of similarities in the way the land sits between Seminole and what this is, because you've got this first successional dune, so to speak, where this original dike was built that, that kind of rises up right along Charleston Harbor. And then it kind of ducks down into the middle of the property with some ponds and then rises back up towards the inland part of the property, not dissimilarly to the big dune that you play off of at the backside of, of Seminole versus and the and the, and the succession, the first dune, the actual dune line along the beach with the low area in between. So I do think about that golf course a lot when I think about Patriots. Um, and I do hope that it's an opportunity to build an incredible golf course that really talk about windy, a windy site. Again, just like ocean is, you know, we have strong winds uh, almost every day of the year at Patriots. And, you know, I think trying to build that fast, firm, Lots of short grass and exposed sand. Um, and also, you know, just the location of it being right there in the heart of Charleston, looking back across Charleston Harbor at downtown at the historic uh, downtown area of South Battery. And, you know, I, I've told the story to people. I stand there on the 17th, which is kind of definitely, for lack of better terms, the signature hole of Patriots as it stands today, a little island green. And you stand there for this par three and you look and you can see the lower peninsula of Charleston. And it's this old historic town with church steeples and buildings dating back to the early 1700s. And it feels very historic. It feels like you're looking across the old course from the farthest stretches out at 11 and 12 and 13, looking back towards the village. And so and it's actually about the same distance from 12 T to, down, to, mm -hmm. uh, to the village of St. Andrews as it is from the 17th that Patriots across the harbor to Charleston. So, you know, I, it, it, I feel a big responsibility to, to, to do something special there because I really do think that it's an opportunity um, to highlight uh, Charleston Harbor and really bring golf and the history of golf back to Charleston. And uh, we have got these great resort courses at Kiowa and the ocean course, and, and we've got great private golf in Charleston with Yeamans Hall and the country club of Charleston. But, you know, we, Charleston has become, you know, for the last 12 years, we've had people calling it the best city in the universe. And, um, you know, Kiowa is 45 minutes away. And there's a lot of folks that come to Charleston and don't even know Kiowa is there. And to, to have this home in the center of Charleston and maybe be able to tell a little bit more of that story of Harleston Green and the history of golf and the birthplace of golf in North America as Charleston. Um, which, by the way, one of the taglines we've been using at Muni has been hometown golf and golf's hometown, um, <laughs> trying to play up on that history of, of Harleston Green back in the early 1700s. And so, um, so, so yeah, the, the golf course itself has got, the, this, this site has incredible potential. Um, and that really is my inspiration to kind of see it be short grass and sand. 
and and create a golf course that is a very linksy style um, with these incredible views of Charleston Harbor. You'll actually see Charleston Harbor from at least 17 of 18 golf holes, if not all of them, and um, and just provide this again. A, trying, and I I am very very involved, and in, and I find it very important to think about golf and the golf industry and and, and what golf means in any given town and in your hometown, you know, Charleston is incredibly special to me. And so to be able to have a touch on municipal golf in Charleston and then be able to then change, then also have this touch and look at this, this kind of resort component of Charleston in in a different market and create a feeder system, so to speak in Charleston, so that you've got great golf at every level um, is really a, a big, important piece to me. And I think, you know, from an accessibility perspective, Muni is very important. I think it's very important that we continue to look at these alternative options for golf and small footprints. And then I think it's important that you do have that experiential golf course, the golf course that's good enough to come play, not one that's just good enough to play while you're there. And I think that's what Patriots really deserves to be. What has to happen for Patriots Point to get off the ground or what's the next step? Well, you know, we're, we're working through all of that. It is part of a larger project that is the redevelopment of all of Patriots Point. And those familiar with Charleston will know the Yorktown, the, the old aircraft carrier, World War II aircraft carrier museum that sits in Charleston Harbor is part of this island. It was once Hog Island. And so it will eventually become part of this urban resort um, that is on 99-year ground lease through the state of South Carolina. And we are currently working through the approvals to be able to go and do this work and extend that lease out because no one, no one's going to uh, to put the kind of effort and input and and financial uh, commitment towards this without that extension of that 99-year lease and making sure that we'll be able to control it for for decades, you know, for a century to come. Um, and so that's that's where we're at right now is just working through that process. Um, and hoping that we'll be able to actually start turning dirt sometime towards the end of the year. Nice. That'd be exciting. What a, what a, it is, a, it, like you said, it's a great setting. It's a, it's not a great golf property, but it's a great golf location. And I mean, if you could get the, if you could do it correctly, it could be something very special. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it, it, and it, and it does speak to the fact that, you know, there are great sites out there and a lot of them are very remote, <laughs> You know, trying to marry up all of the elements, the market, the site, the setting, you know, all of those things, usually, you know, and, and we used to talk, and Jerry Barton, our CEO at Landmark, used to always say, you either have to be the best, the cheapest, or the most convenient. You're never going to be all three. And so you're going to have to create something out of two out of three of those. Here, for me, you know, we're going to have to create the site. You know, I mean, it's a great setting. It's a great market. The site itself is going to require some earth moving. It's going to require some sand. It's going to require something more than a minimalist approach. Um, and, and I think that can be done very successfully in this setting because of the fact that um, we have these great dune lines and kind of the beginnings of what could be really emphasized. Not unlike, you know, you talked about the green complexes at Muni and how you start with almost nothing and you try to just exaggerate it and it's the same thing at patriot Mm -hmm. 
as we close out here, just going back to Pete Dye for a minute, you're very close to the ocean course. We talked about that. But if you could get on a plane or get in a car and go play one Pete Dye course right now, where are you headed? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. And one that I'm not ready for. Um, <laughs> let me see here. What is the essential Pete Dye golf course? Um, for today, you know, it could change, but for, what are you in the mood for? For today, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think because of the history and maybe because of the knowledge and the education of it, that, you know, Pete Dye Golf Club and the number of people who worked on that golf course over the course of time, mm -hmm. um, there's just so many great stories about it. And the golf course that evolved over decades, essentially, because of the amount of time that it took to get built, is one that there's a lot to be learned from. Um, and so that one would be high up on my list. Um, and then beyond that, you know, my history with landmark and, and, and talking about, you know, what landmark was able to achieve, Pete did over 30 golf courses for landmark from the seventies, eighties and early nineties and then even the two thousands with lost canyons. And so, you know, looking at PGA West and what was created out of nothing there, um, and, and really seeing, you know, I think that probably speaks to PGA West probably speaks to a lot of what people think of and love about die designs. Um, but there was also a, a, a big difference in that work and what was done at there in Sawgrass and ocean versus what you see at the golf club or at Harbor town, or, you know, some of the earlier works that just had a different style to it. Um, you know, it's, it's great to see somebody evolve over time. Um, and there's no doubt that was Pete um, and had a tremendously long career that allowed for that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would say from my, for me um, and be, and just knowing some of the history of it, I'd, I'd, I'd go see Pete die today go see Pete die golf club today. Um, and, but I think there, there's a lot of good ones in every corner of the country that you can go and experience and really get a sense of what, what the players will experience at ocean um, with those really sharp angles and some of that visual intimidation. I think that's, that's really the crux of the issue for Pete. Yeah. A, for most of the courses that, well, I won't say all of them, but most of them that's, that's in the DNA. That's just part of what you're going to get with his understanding of, of lines, lines of play. That's absolutely right. And, and yeah, I think Rainer had a great influence on that. And he would say that. And also, you know, Langford growing up in the Midwest, as Pete did, I think he saw a lot of their work as well. And, but you know, that, that work of those sharp lines and the flat bottoms and the deep faces, the you know, flat bottom bunkers with the steep faces and just setting up lines of play. Um, were so important. Um, and one of the things too, that, you know, as golfers, everyone should be aware of is playing the right set of tees on a Pete Dye golf course, both too long and too short can be so penalizing because of the sharpness of those angles. Um, all of a sudden, if you don't find yourself in the right set of tees, you're going to have a hard time finding the fairway either by carry or by short you know, or, or by going long in any given situation because of how strong those angles are. And I think ocean's probably a great example, probably the greatest example of that in terms of the steepness and the sharpness of those angles. Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, what's, what's the best modern golf course that you've seen or that you like the best? The best modern total overall, mm -hmm. not talking mm -hmm. Pete now, huh? Not Pete, anybody, anywhere. 
I'm a huge fan of Bill Core's work. Um, and I, I would have to say that, um, that what, what has been done at, at Sandhills is uh, with Bill and Ben is, um, is, is incredible. Um, and again, a style and a site that is, um, there's not a lot of those out there. And if they are, they're a long way from people as has been shown over the last decade with a lot of this remote destination golf that we continue to see built. Um, but certainly I, I would say um, that's the first one that comes to mind because it's often the one that's, that's credited as their best, but I am a, I'm a huge fan of, of Bill's work. Other than Yemen's or Charleston Country Club of Charleston, which arrainer are you going to first? Oh wow, Fishers. Yeah, Fishers. That was quick. Yeah, yeah. no, that one's quick. That one's easy. And again, setting, um, you know, I think is, is incredible. And um, you know, I just think that 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 golf course really um, it. The, the, again, speaks to the idea of templates as strategy versus templates as 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 replicas and look and feel, and the way that the golf holes play is so much more important um, to the strategy mm-hmm. um, than the way they look. So, was there was there something from Fishers that somebody with a now or now that they listen to this podcast might be able to recognize in Muni? Um, well, let's see here. Um, you know, I don't know that. I had the the inspiration of any individual hole from Fishers at Muni the way that I did with some others. Um, but, you know, yeah, I, I'd, I'd be hard pressed to say that. <laughs> Probably not. But I will say that um, the, the ones that um, certainly the, the Yeamans Hall references are well taken. I think there's a lot of that there. Um, and again, that's somewhat a bit of convenience in the fact that you've got shapers on the ground and you're like, you, you want to get this right. You got to, I got to show you what this needs to be. And, you know, fortunately now, instead of running across town on a, on a model T, we run across town and something a little faster and there's a little less lost in translation today than maybe what was lost in the twenties when they were building and looking at Yemen's and the country club and then going back to the beginning. How many of you would love to lead the renovation or reconception of the golf course you grew up playing? That was a dream Troy Miller was able to make come true, and I'm guessing he fulfilled the dreams of quite a few other people around Charleston by bringing all those cool, really well-done Rainer-style template holes into the public forum. His work there gives Muni a really distinct flavor, and I, I think a growing, unique standing in public golf in America. It's become a place to go and a thing to see. Now, it's only my opinion, of course, but I think what makes a golf course interesting to play day after day is a great set of greens, greens that have really interesting movements that look great, that make you think about how to play all the different short shots around them, make you grind on your on your long putts, and most importantly, play differently day to day, depending on where the hole is cut. And all of that absolutely applies to Muni. I don't think it would get old playing there once a week, twice a week. Uh, I wish I had the opportunity to do that. Patriot's point sound, it sounds interesting, too. Uh, in a separate conversation I had with Troy, he described the development as potentially having a hotel or resor- uh, resort component. That immediately brought to my mind 
Torrey Pines, which is obviously a large municipal golf course, talking about Torrey Pines in, in La Jolla near San Diego, that also has great views, just like Patriots Point would, and that partners with an upscale hotel that it doesn't own, but it's right there on property, the lodge. It sounds like something like that would really be effective and, and be a real attractive at Patriots Point. And the way he described basically wanting to, you know, if they could get this project going, sand capping the entire site to kind of create all kinds of small little sandy movements uh, and also to accentuate the, the property's dunes. That sounded a little to me like another municipal course that's molded to look like some sort of Lynx expression, and that would be Chambers Bay, which of course would provide a, another interesting model to look at. Troy also had some strong thoughts on the ocean course and the PGA Championship. Uh, this is a course that he knows as well as anyone. And of course, it'll all come down to the wind, as he mentioned. Uh, it usually blows either uh, out of the east or out of the west, which is interesting. The ocean course is routed. All the holes go either east or west. Uh, so on any given day, if the wind is up, half the holes are playing into the wind, half the holes are playing downwind. So the tournament officials will have to be very careful about where they set the tees. And this time of year, you can also get a north wind that cuts across the golf course. It'll cut across every hole, moving balls left and right. And that, that will be really interesting if they get that. But I think the whole thing is going to come down to recovery shots and getting up and down from around the greens off tight lies. Most of the greens are elevated. Some of the greens aren't. Uh, some greens sit low, tight to the ground, like 12 and 13. But most are elevated and have shoulders that shed balls off into low chipping areas. And that's going to happen quite a bit if the wind shows up, especially if it's cutting across the holes. And we want that wind. So thanks to Troy Miller for joining me. Thanks to you all for listening. Please share this podcast with your fellow golf friends if you haven't already. You can go to your favorite podcast provider and subscribe to the show. And if I could ask a favor of you while you're there, please leave a star rating and a comment. Let me know what you're thinking. You can always hit me up on social media. I'm at Feed the Ball. I'd like to thank the Sundogs for the music. And until we get a chance to do this again, adios.